Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. U.S. officials are bracing for Iran to respond to the killing of its most powerful general. And today, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo defended the strike against Qasem Soleimani, ordered by President Trump, saying there were multiple pieces of information that led to the action. It's the right decision. We got it right. The Department of Defense did excellent work. Uh, and the president had a uh, entirely legal, appropriate, and a basis, as well as a decision that fit perfectly within our strategy and how to counter the threat of malign activity from Iran more broadly. But was Trump's strike against Soleimani legal? The opinions run the gamut. Joining me is Professor Karen Greenberg, a historian and director of the Center for National Security at Fordham Law School. She's the author of Rogue Justice, The Making of the Security State. So, Karen, let's start with U.S. law. Is there any law regarding this type of military strike? There's a lot of policy that, you know, in order to get around it, you have to have very, very good reasons. You know, that'd be the more accurate way of describing it, that although law has been recommended in this regard in terms of assassination, as a country, we didn't decide to go down that route. Instead, what we've done is to rely on presidential executive orders that have been renewed president after president, often expanded in their scope, but basically political assassination for many reasons many of them protective of national security for the United States, has been banned under U.S. policy. So this is a step in a new direction. Well, the White House is not calling this an assassination. The White House is calling it a targeted killing. What's the distinction? Well, it depends on who you talk to, obviously. Some people would say it's just a euphemistic distinction. But one thing you can say about the targeted killing policy is that it did lay out in an attempt to move away from the ban on assassinations, it did attempt to have certain guidelines by which the administration and military, et cetera, would conduct its strikes. Among those were that there had to be an imminent attack, that it had to be done in a way that was responsible in terms of proportionality a lot of things that were in accordance with international law. So many of us would say that there isn't a distinction, that we were really putting a patina on something. Also, it was very interesting here in terms of the way the Trump administration is describing it, is their invoking of terrorism, that General Soleimani was a terrorist, a member of al-Qudsi, Iranian Revolutionary Guard, and they are have been put on a terrorist list here. And so that puts us again into to a gray area. What is the distinction between somebody who's acting within a sovereign state and somebody who is said to be on a terrorist list? And so, again, it's the confusion of legal authorities. The targeted killing policy was very much designed in the context of war on terror, war on terrorism policies. Um, And this, no matter how you describe it, even if Soleimani is understood to be the terrorist that they're describing him to be, and make no mistake about it, This is a man who declared himself an enemy of the United States, who wanted um, to conduct violence and inspire others to do violence against the United States and has a past 
of violence against the United States. Nevertheless, the confusion of category state, non-state actor, ups the stakes tremendously in terms of what we can expect to come next, in terms of next steps, who's going to retaliate, is there going to be a retaliation, and what will that mean? And further is, and I know we started talking about domestic law, but further, if we toss international conventions to the wind, what does that mean in terms of other countries and the restraints we can expect other countries to place upon themselves? So we're in what I would consider to be dangerous territory. We saw the use of targeted killings or the term targeted killings in the Bush and Obama administrations. Is President Trump just following his predecessors or is the fact that Soleimani was an active general, does that make a difference? I think it makes a difference. I think the Obama people would say it makes a difference. Many of them have weighed in on this. And remember, the the Obama administration knew of Soleimani, thought about whether or not a targeted attack, officials have told us since, thought about whether an attack would have been wise and decided it was not wise. And for the very reasons of what we're seeing now, which is the escalation of potential violence, the approach to war. So while the term may have been used, the consequences that that were considered by the predecessors of Trump look like they could be quite worrying and and dangerous. President Trump has been saying that the strike was because of an imminent threat. Is there a legal definition of (laughs) what that consists of, or is it more political? I wouldn't say political is the word for it. I would say a better word for what it is is strategic in the sense that imminence is considered, you know, if you look it up in the dictionary, imminence is considered something that is just about to happen. That is the standard customary use of the term outside of the legal terms. And inside international law, it's been used to mean that, something that's about to happen. We actually don't know if this was something that was about to happen. And we may find out later this week when Congress is briefed. And if they're briefed and we find, you know, X, Y, Z was planned, this is the information we have, that may be the case. So far, we haven't seen any credible evidence of that. There have been some reporters who are saying that officials have told them that there wasn't an imminent attack. Under Obama, and this is something the Obama administration has received much criticism for, the term imminent was used, particularly in one legal justification for the killing of an American citizen who was the chief spokesperson and online recruiter for al-Qaeda, it was used in a very broad way, well outside accepted understanding of it under international law. Basically, the premise was this is an individual who means us harm, who's affiliated with a terrorist organization that has declared an enemy of us, and we are in a, a war with them. And he may do disastrous things to the United States in the future. And so imminence was in the future rather than a specific plan, a specific target, a specific time period. And so we don't know whether there are a lot of assumptions about it, but we really don't know and won't know until evidence is presented whether or not there was an imminent attack of this nature. And there's a lot of doubt about whether there was one. I've been talking about the legal implications of the military strike against Iran's top general with Professor Karen Greenberg, director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Karen, let's turn to the Authorization for Use of Military Force, or AUMF. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats have complained that the Trump administration didn't consult with Congress before the strike. What's the proper way for this to have proceeded? 
If it was an imminent attack, then the president has the right as commander in chief to launch an attack that would be harmful to the country that is imminent. And he has to report to Congress in, I think it's a 48-hour period, on what's happened. Barring it being that pressing, he is supposed to consult with Congress ahead of time. So there is some, you know, wiggle room there, but he does need to report to them. And for the most part, the understanding is reporting would have been done ahead of time. And now we're hearing that he did consult individuals about this. But the question you're raising about the authorization for the use of military force is is much larger than anything about reporting, because that is not dealt with in the AUMF. The issue about the AUMF, which was passed in the fall of 2001 in response to the attacks of uh, September 11th, 2001, is that the AOMF has been reinterpreted over and over again by successive administrations to encompass larger and larger territories and new terrorist groups. And it's come to the point where it's almost as if the word terrorist can be used to justify the use of the authorization for the use of military force, whether or not it is attached to 9-11 or al-Qaeda which is the original intent of the authorization for the use of military force. And it has changed over time, partly because of policy, partly because of some legal decisions that were made to spread to uh, associated forces with al-Qaeda. Nevertheless, this would not be in that category. And so many times Congress has brought up the idea of rethinking the authorization for the use of military force, getting a new one that is adaptive to today's current circumstances that would either constrain or allow, we don't know, the kinds of targeted killing strikes that we've seen in Yemen, Somalia, etc. But that has not happened. They've shied away from it, almost as if to say, it's better to have a broad, untethered policy than to nail them down. And it's important to remember in this context that George Bush, in 2003, when we switched the focus of our military from Afghanistan to Iraq, went to Congress and got an authorization for the use of military force for Iraq. So the idea that each theater, each conflict needs its own authorization is not something that hasn't been done even since 9-11. So it's something that Congress has been just allowing to continue, not wanting to confront it. It's going to be a messy confrontation and a messy debate. And now we see where we are. President Trump has been governing in part by tweet, and he appears to want to continue that with military actions. He sent a message on Twitter on Sunday claiming he had no legal duty to inform lawmakers. He said, quote, these media posts will serve as notification to the United States Congress that should Iran strike any U.S. person or target, the United States will quickly and fully strike back. Is this notification enough? Is a tweet notification enough? No. This is our president's way of saying, I determine the law. The law does not determine me and my actions. You know, it's almost incomprehensible that he would say such a thing, but he did. And it shows his general attitude towards not just the courts, not just the law, but the courts, towards judges, as we've seen, which is he's going to do what he wants and go ahead, stop him. And this is why it's up to Congress. It's up to the American people to make this a priority and to demand that the laws and the rules that are in effect do pertain 
even in cases of national security, and, and many would argue, along with me, especially in cases of national security, where we have to trust our officials. And in this case, we found time and time again that we don't aren't shown the evidence, we don't know what's going on, and therefore the pushing aside of the law is just allowing for a transformation of the presidency and of the balance of powers that really does undermine the fundamental principles of our governing mechanisms. There is confusion about the president's threat to target Iranian cultural sites. He made that threat in a tweet, and it has since been walked back by the defense secretary. So let's start with, is it against international law to destroy an Iranian cultural site? Yes. So under the Hague Convention, which was from 1954, warring parties um, are not allowed to destroy one another's cultural sites. There's also some responsibility placed upon the country itself that's under attack or that's worrying about his sites to not put things in harm's way, to reduce things from harm's way. And we saw a lot of that prior to the Hague Convention, actually, during World War II, a lot of hiding of things and protecting cultural artifacts. But yes, it is against international law. There are also references to it in the Geneva Conventions. The United States ratified this treaty late, I might say, in uh, 2009, although it had been proposed earlier, and although the military the Joint Chiefs, I, I believe, had supported it much earlier on. But yes, it is considered, actually, it's considered part of the attack on civilians to attack cultural icons of a country. We've seen it violated by ISIS repeatedly with much condemnation from uh, the world world at large. And now the idea that the United States would threaten this, I think, has really made a number of individuals, including individuals in the military, both, you know, the the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and others to say, wait a minute, we're going to do this according to law, and that would not be according to law. But the threat itself is of some significance. And while the act is forbidden, you know, the threat itself is a threshold moment because it basically conveys two things. One, again, we're not going to be beholden the international law. And two, we're willing to do or we will do things that are symbolic, not just um, strategically effective in order to introduce a level of almost humiliation into this conversation. And so it's wrong on many levels, moral, legal, political, and not a good sign of where we're headed. What else can Congress do to sort of rein in a president's military actions? For one thing, they could pass a very specific authorization for the use of military force, repeal the old one and pass a new one, which will be hard in this context because we're facing so many different potential enemies all at the same time, whether it's Iran or North Korea or others. And so, you know, there'll be a lot of debate about how broad, broadly it can be um you know, determine will it be geographically limited? Will it be um, WMD related? You know, what exactly, how are they going to word a new AOMS? Um, but that is one thing they can do in particular. Um, a second thing is they could um, probably, I would argue, 
they need to go forward with this impeachment trial when it's ready, um, because a lot of this problem, the problem is our president and um, the unwillingness for him to abide by custom. And then when the dust settles and we have a little bit of space and time, when we get there, then we really need to think about larger ways of um, passing legislation to contain um, what the president can and can't do without congressional uh, approval. Um, And so um, there will be a number of of legislative uh, moments, I think, in the future. But for right now, one clear focus, something that Congress has been thinking about for a long time, would be to um, look at the authorization for the use of military force. Thanks, Karen. That's Karen Greenberg of Fordham Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.